After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen, hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray and we'll look at Revelation 19 a little bit more closely. And I don't really like to do anything that draws attention to myself as a preacher. So I am barefoot this morning only because, as you'll see that, my, my dress shoes were hurting at my, one of my knees. So I just had to take those off so I wasn't. But if I walk out from behind here, like, oh, he doesn't have shoes on. It's not some stunt. It's not spiritual. Just like, I have a bad knee, okay? So um, <laughs> let me pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Help us now, Holy Spirit, in the middle of our frailty of communication and understanding, do what you do, which is opening our eyes to the glory and beauty of Christ, our need of him, and his provision of that need for us. Help us now in Jesus' name. Amen. Years ago, my wife and I worked at a summer camp. We were a camp romance, and we worked uh, at, at a camp in the Ozarks, and part of our job was to teach rock climbing and we started on what was called this big wooden tower that we, I think was called the Alpine Tower, maybe 25 or 30 foot tall. We could get kids harnessed in and just teach them to climb the, 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 the rocks, the handholds and footholds on the Alpine Tower. Now, we, these kids were largely kids, from very urban kids from St. Louis. So they had never done anything like this before. And most of them had no interest in doing this, anything like this. They were very scared, which I understand. They'd never done anything like this. So often, we would, just t- we would start by taking them to the top of the Alpine Tower, having them climb the ladder. It was very secure, going to the top. And I just wanted them to see the construction of what was at the top, see how things were, you know, somebody had gone before them, and they had built this tower, and it was very strong. I wanted them to see the welds and the bolts and see how strong the pulley system was, that it was very secure. And then we would go down to the bottom and I explain how, how strong the rope was that was holding them. I mean, the tensile strengths of these rope is like 6,000 pounds, 8,000 pounds. It could hold them and 50 of their friends and more, right? It's very strong. So what we were trying to do was breed confidence or hope in these kids in 
two things, of what had gone before them and the strength of what had gone before them and the strength of what was holding them. And if they would have some, they would place their hope in those things, they would have a reasonable faith or a reasonable trust that they would be held. And then they would have to take their own steps and climb up. And if they fell, they would have confidence that they would be held. And you know what? Most of them did that. Not all of them, but most of them did that. Many of them fell. Nobody died. It was reasonable trust. Because that which had gone before was stronger, and that which held them was stronger than their ability to hold themselves. That is a similar picture of what we see happening in Revelation over and over and over again. As we've been moving through the book of Revelation, we've seen that not all of Revelation is future. In fact, a lot of it is not future. A lot of it is describing dynamics that happen in the earth and have multiple manifestation in different generations and different, different places. But some of Revelation is future because some of history is yet future to us. And we're looking at the, a part of Revelation today that is future. And when we look, what we see is Revelation giving us an image to w- in which we may anchor our hope. And as we anchor our hope, anchor our confidence in that which is happening in the future, and as we see that it's based on someone who's stronger than us, Jesus, who did something that we couldn't do, live and die in our place and break the power of death and take his... Uh, take his throne and begin to reign, and we're held by something stronger than us connected to that future, namely the Holy Spirit of the living God, as we we attach our, our hope to that future, what happens in time, in history, is we are fueled with a sort of resilient faith, even a resilient joy. Today, we see especially that hope in future deliverance. Deliverance fuels a resilient faith, and that is going to be deliverance out of something and deliverance into something. Deliverance out of the destructive power of evil in the future, and deliverance into a fullness of joy in the future. For the last few weeks since we were in Revelation 12, so I don't know, six weeks ago, a month and a half, two months ago, we've been getting these images that are pictures of what we might call spiritual warfare or spiritual conflict. We saw the dragon who was an image of Satan, and he, he... issues this war on the church, on the people of God. His intention is to go after the people of God. And then we saw in Revelation 13, Revelation gave us two images of instruments, we might say, that that the dragon uses. We saw one was the beast of the sea, which we took to be organized earthly power that's organized apart from the gospel of the kingdom of God. Now, this doesn't mean, you know, so these are governments or movements or people groups that, that that organize in a certain way to oppress God's people. It doesn't mean they're as bad as they possibly can be. It just means that they're organized apart from the lordship of Christ. So sometimes because of common grace, it's fine. Sometimes it's oppressive. That was the beast of the sea. The beast of the earth, we took the the earthly ideology, which sort of supports those things. Again, these ideologies aren't as bad as they can be, but they're just not rooted in the confession that Jesus is the Christ. So sometimes, because of common grace, they kind of overlap with the kingdom of God. We can say, yes, that's great. We can affirm that. But other times, because they're not starting in and ending with Jesus as the Christ, we have to say, hold on. We can't go all the way with any of those ideologies. The beast of the earth, the beast of the sea combine to create what we saw last week, this culture. We might call a worldly culture, which was given to us through the image of Babylon. 
this iconic city in Jewish history which stood for the oppression of God's people because of their own history and was opulent and luxurious. And we saw Babylon as that which entices people away from the worship of Jesus and the following Jesus. Babylon that was then presented as a beautiful, alluring, attractive, deadly prostitute. And that was last week. The, the prostitute showed us that the, the enticement of this world that draws us away from Christ is actually very attractive and very dangerous. And remember the, in the Old Testament, the picture of spiritual unfaithfulness often was pictured as adultery or fornication or sexual immorality. So though it may contain actual sexual immorality, the image being presented is one of, of spiritual unfaithfulness. And then... And it was a long lead up to what we're looking at today. That the last week was the judgment on Babylon, right? The removal of that. And we said in history, we can say John can hear fallen is Babylon the great because something happened in history that cut the root. And I had this flower last week that was looked fresh and really good. And here it is this week. It doesn't look as good because the root had been cut. Right? And we say it was like saying to this flower, fallen are you with a life, death, and resurrection cuts the root of the life of this world and its allurement away from Christ, and it will have an eventual effect. So this flower not looking quite as good this week as, as last week, right? Um, it's, it's, it's dying, whether it knows it or not. Still some color there, still some life there, but it's limited. This week is heaven's response to that judgment on Babylon. And then it takes us out past the end of history just a little bit. And we want to run out there, look at that and see that, anchor our hope there and let it work back in to our life today. So two things, deliverance out of destructive evil and into a fullness of joy. First, deliverance out of destructive evil. The first thing we see here is that this is a, what we might call a just deliverance. Verse 1, after this I heard what seemed to be a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just, for he has judged the great prostitute, Babylon, who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. So that word hallelujah, or your translation might say alleluia, It's a very common word. You've heard this word if you've been around the church. Hallelujah. It occurs in your English Bible four times only. All four times are in this passage. You say, well, that can't be. I've heard this word all the time. Why do I know this word so much? One reason, his name is Handel. He wrote a work called the Messiah. Handel's Messiah is why we know the word hallelujah. And then it birthed all these kids' songs. Hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. Praise ye the Lord, right? You know. Praise ye the Lord is actually what hallelujah means when it's translated. So all of the English translations, even your old King James translates hallelujah right here and no place else. It does show up in Hebrew a few other times. It's just translated as praise the Lord. It's from two Hebrew words, hallel, which means praise, and yah, which is a shortened form of Yahweh. Hallelujah. Okay. Something interesting is going on here, though. There are five psalms in the Old Testament together, Psalm 113 to 118, known as the Psalms of Hallel, or the Psalms of Hallel-Yah, Hallelujah, Psalm 113 to 118. Why is this significant? Sorry, we're in the weeds a little bit. 
You can check out for a second if you don't care about this stuff and come back in a second, okay? Psalm 113 and 118 were sung before, during, and after the Passover meal in commemoration of God delivering the people from Egypt and then judging Egypt, right, out of slavery in Egypt. After Babylon, their people are delivered from Babylon, and Babylon is judged, they sing the hallelujah. So it's the same thing. In fact, uh, if you remember the Last Supper, where Jesus, the Passover meal, the Last Supper, from which we get our institution of communion that we're going to celebrate in a little bit, in Matthew 26, it says, Jesus, after eating, sang a song. What would that song have been? That song would have been Psalm 118, which is actually quoted later in this passage. Okay? So just put this all together, then you can check back in. Okay? Uh, put this all together. You've got the Last Supper and all the redemption pictured therein as a picture of redemption from slavery and overcoming of evil. They're singing the hallelujahs. And then in the future, Babylon is judged, evil is done away with, and you hear the hallelujahs again, right? So the power that was in that Passover meal is the reason for the judgment of Babylon, okay? And then we're going to come to the table in a little bit, but it's not the last meal that we're going to see in this passage. Okay, now come back. Okay, there is joy in a great multitude in heaven over this judgment, which automatically puts us in a very dangerous place when we see God's people rejoicing over judgment. And I want to point out here that this rejoicing is in heaven, not on earth. It is in the future, not right now. And that might, in the future, in heaven, maybe, I would say, is the only place we can safely rejoice over the destruction of evil. Proverbs 24, 17 teaches us, do not rejoice when your enemy falls, and let not your heart be glad when he stumbles. I think this is a warning against rejoicing too much right now over the downfall of evil, even if we perceive it to be evil against the, you know, that working against the gospel of Jesus, because right now we are always partially blind to our own sin and blind to our complicity in the very same type of things. Maybe even that evil that we're glad we're seeing is overthrown. We don't see how, you know what, maybe we practice the same things. Maybe we're complicit in the same ways. I mean, we don't see that sin in us. We're glad that evil's getting overthrown, but we're not, we don't see it in us. We are, we are open right now to the danger of what we might call judgmentalism. Like, yeah, that's right. You deserve that, and I don't at all. But I'm glad you're going down. So I think that's why it says right now, don't rejoice when your enemy falls. But in the future, in heaven, we see rejoicing because then, finally then, and only then, we see clearly. And one day... When sin has been removed, we will see clearly. But I think now the best posture is lament for a broken world. And remember, anything you see around you that you would construct as evil, what we can see with our eyes, there's something behind that. That's what Revelation 12 and 13 has been about. There's spiritual forces behind this that we cannot see. We should weep and lament for the brokenness of our world 
and we should be patient for it. Now, we, there's some righteous indignation that comes along with it, but we must be very wary of rejoicing at the downfall of what we consider evil, right? But we also must hold on to verse 2, which says, His judgments are true and just. And Taylor talked about this a couple weeks ago. There is one alone who sees clearly to judge. He's not in my, he's not right here. I'm going to say in my shoes. He's not in my socks right here. He's like, he's not in your seat. There is one who sees clearly, and his judgments are true and just. And guys, it is true and just for God to bring judgment. Okay? There is a Croatian theologian named Miroslav Volf. So grew up in Croatia, if you're aware of the Croatian-Bosnian conflict. It's a violent war zone. It's been for years. There's been no rest in that part of the world for some time. And he writes, he, he's an, he he's, lives in America now, and write, writes on Christian nonviolence, that the ethic of Jesus is not to take up the sword, sword, the sword, the sword against people, not to take up the sword against people. Now we're not talking about just war, it's just like in, we're not a people that bring vengeance. And he says there's only one, there's no, only one philosophy that will allow God's people to be a people who don't bring vengeance. It is understanding that we have a God who does bring vengeance. In the West, he says the danger is thinking, well, there's, there's an argument that says God, we shouldn't be, bring vengeance because God doesn't bring vengeance. He said that only works in the West. Let me read you a little excerpt from a very good but demanding read called um, Exclusion and Embrace. This is deep in the book, 300, page 334. He says this thesis that I just said will be unpopular with many in the West but imagine speaking to a people, as I have, as I do, whose cities and villages have first been plundered, then burned, and leveled to the ground, whose daughters and sisters have been violated, whose fathers and brothers have been killed. And you say to them, we should not retaliate? Why not? I say the only means of prohibiting violence by us is to insist that violence is only legitimate when it comes from God. Violence thrives today, secretly nourished by the belief that God refuses to take the sword. It takes the quiet of an American suburb for the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence is a result of a God who refuses to judge. In a scorched land, soaked in the blood of the innocent, the idea will invariably die, like other pleasant captivities of the liberal mind. If God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make a final end of violence, that God would not be worthy of our worship. What he's saying is, if you have a God who never brings justice, you will bring the justice. You will say, well, I'm going to make things right right now, whatever the cost. But, Christian, if you have a God who sees clearly and you know that you don't, and he will make things right one day, we can say, you know what, Lord? I will entrust this to you to make it right, and we can be a people of peace. His justice is true and just. Ours never can be. We're too blind. But one day, we will see him execute that and we'll say, praise be to you. Hallelujah. Okay? Deliverance is just. Deliverance is permanent. Verse 3, once more they cried out, hallelujah. The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne saying, Amen, hallelujah. Smoke going up forever and ever is just an image of 
permanence, right? There's no, there's no resurrection for Babylon. There is a day coming in the future when God's people can breathe easy from the destruction of evil and from our own sin. Though we often say like history repeats itself, that's just like in a small circle. On the big arc, it's going somewhere. Right? It's going somewhere. There's a day coming where we breathe easier. I jokingly said in the first service that you don't actually have to read the book series, The Lord of the Rings, if you stay here long enough, because we'll just quote the whole thing eventually. Taylor did a couple weeks ago, and uh, this is one, sort of an iconic illustration there, good enough to bring it back. You may know the story. It's It's a huge good versus evil movie, and at the end, finally, evil has been vanquished for a time, and the a great cost to the characters, a great personal cost to the characters in this, this saga. And two of the little characters, right, the, the hobbits, Sam and Frodo, have survived, but they are under the impression that all of the rest of their party has not. They have died, even their friend, the wizard Gandalf, who is so strong. And finally, they do what's required to vanquish evil. They're delivered, but they think everybody else is dead, and Sam who's in many ways the hero of the whole thing, the faithful helper, collapses in a despairing sleep and he wakes up and here are these words. Sam opened his eyes and started with an open mouth and for a moment between bewilderment and great joy he could not answer for Gandalf had walked into the room. At last he gasped, Gandalf, I thought you were dead. But then I thought, I was dead myself. Is everything sad going to come untrue? What's happened to the world? A great shadow has departed, said Gandalf. And then he laughed, and the sound was like music or water in a parched land. And as he listened, the thought came to Sam that he had not heard laughter, the pure sound of merriment for days upon days without count. It fell upon his ears like the echo of all the joys he had ever known, but he himself burst into tears. The reality, friends, is in Christ, all sad things do come untrue. And as challenging as it is to say, we must understand that that is true, but it's on up ahead a little bit. It's up ahead a little bit. It's in the next chapter, but the same book. We're not home yet. And sometimes the best and only application of hardship, of seeing the breakdown of your own body, of battles against sin that we repeatedly lose, of the dilapidation of relationships, of of friendships that have grown cold, or, or marriages that are tolerable, or all the disappointment in this life, sometimes the only and best application is wait Hold on. Hold out. Go up ahead. Anchor your hope there. Know that you're anchored to something stronger than yourself in the Holy Spirit of the living God and let that hope feed back into your life right now at a a resilient faithfulness. This is the gospel of the kingdom of God. Jesus has accomplished something that will be made manifest to our senses one day, but that day is not today. Deliverance is permanent. It's just, and it's unifying in some way. Look at verse 5. And from the throne came a voice saying, 
praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. Now, I take small and great to be earthly designations of those who are relatively secure and prosperous in this life and those who are relatively insecure and non-prosperous in this life. Now, a fair reading of this room is this. Almost all of us are great by world standards, guys. This, we just have to understand that. I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm saying that it is what it is. Now, I know we live in a culture where sort of like we're essentially competitive, so we only look up the ladder to people who have more. Right? A few years ago, the Occupy Wall Street thing going on, and they might have, there's some legitimate complaints. I get that. But there people mad at the 1%. But, like, that's because you're only looking up the ladder. Like, look down the ladder. Like, you are the 1%, right? This is like the world we live in. I'm not saying it's wrong, but it's like one of the things this teaches us is that even the great, relatively speaking, are not exempt from the seduction of this age. There's a reason Jesus says it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. You know what that reason is? It is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. He wasn't giving a hypothetical thing. The American dream is, as we said, the beast of the earth. <laughs> it's an ideology. Whatever else good it might be, like if, if, if we are learning that real life is found in accumulation, isolation, and comfort, our soul is in a dangerous spot. And that is the air we breathe in and out, in and out, in and out every day as those who are in, in a great land. It is. We are not exempt from that danger of Babylon. We live in it. But one day we'll say, praise God, that is gone. That, that seduction that I feel a pull in my own soul right now is gone. Secondly, it calls us to think and pray often for brothers and sisters around the world who suffer much greater weight than we do. They too will say, praise God. That seduction and destruction is gone. All sad things do come untrue. It's true. It's up ahead. Now, if you'll allow me a little poetic license, I want to say it this way too. Not only do all sad things come untrue, all true things come unsad. Here's what I mean. Those in Christ, if you're in Christ, you have a union with Jesus now that will never get stronger than it is today. It cannot. Because that union is none other than the Holy Spirit of the living God. Our union with Christ cannot get stronger. But right now it's shrouded in a, sin of, a sadness of sin. And one day that sadness will be removed. And we will experience that union in a whole new light. So that though that union doesn't get stronger, our experience of it will deepen. And we taste of it now, but it's only a foretaste. And in that day, we will be delivered into a fullness of joy. And that's what the next half of the passage is about. You might think that this, the end of the, the evil is like enough. I mean, John doesn't know where this thing is going. He doesn't know when the end of Revelation is coming the first time. He might think that people say, oh, you know, hallelujah, that Babylon's been defeated. And end, you're done, you're good. And that would be good. But it doesn't stop there. 
There's more. In fact, look at verse 6. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out. It's like, there's not just more. This voice is stronger than before. It's more excited about something than just the destruction of evil. What is it excited about? Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and the bride has made herself ready. This Heaven resounds and it's actually more excited over this coming wedding than the destruction of evil. It would, because that's what things were originally made for. Evil is an interruption to the plan. In the garden, God, the intention was for God to dwell with his people. We are made for something right now that we do not currently experience. And at the root of that is a relational longing. This is a little bit of a long read, but I want to draw your attention to what's on the back. This is, I've often said, this essay called The Weight of Glory from C.S. Lewis Outside the Scripture has been the most shaping few pages that I've read in my life. I encourage you to read it. In our community group, we read it like once a year out loud. Lewis writes this, Now, if we are made for heaven... The desire for our proper place will already be in us, but not yet attached to the true object and will even appear as the rival of that object. So we have a desire. We're built for something. He says built for heaven, built for full relationship with God and a restored new earth and restored world. But we're not experiencing that yet fully. But it's in us. If... Okay, this is Lewis language. If a trans-temporal, trans-finite good is our real destiny, so if a beyond time and beyond limitation good is our real destiny, then any other good on which our desire fixes must in some be in some degree fallacious. We must bear at best only a symbolical relation to what will truly satisfy. Now, he goes into deep here and he talks about a poet named Wordsworth. You don't have to understand all this, but you might get part of it. In speaking of of this desire for our own far-off country, which we find in ourselves even now, I feel a certain shyness. I am almost committing an indecency. I am trying to rip open the inconsolable secret in each one of you, the secret which hurts so much that you take your revenge on it by calling it names like nostalgia and romanticism and adolescence. The secret also which pierces with such sweetness that when, in very intimate conversation, the mention of it becomes imminent, We grow awkward and affect to laugh at ourselves. The secret we cannot hide and cannot tell, though we desire to do both. We cannot tell it because it is a desire for something that has never actually appeared in our experience. We cannot hide it because our experience is constantly suggesting it. And we betray ourselves like lovers at the mention of a name. Our commonest expedient or way of dealing with this is to call it beauty and behave if that had settled the matter. Wordsworth's expedient was to identify it with certain moments in his own past, but all that is a cheat. If Wordsworth had gone back to those moments in the past, he would, have not have, he would not have found the thing itself, but only the reminder of it. What he remembered would turn out to be itself a remembering. The books or the music in which we thought the beauty was located will betray us if we trust to them. And here it is. It was not in them, it only came through them. And what came through them was longing, These things, the beauty, the memory of our own past, are good images of what we really desire. But if they are mistaken for the thing itself, they turn into dumb idols, breaking the hearts of their worshipers. For they are not the thing itself. They are only the scent of a flower we have not found. 
the echo of a tune we have not heard, news from a country we have never yet visited. He's really just telling the secret of everybody's heart here. We are made for heaven and full relationship to the living God and a restored earth in full communion with everyone else. We are made for that. It was lost at the fall. We are heading to that. It is in the, the, res- the renewal of all things. In the middle, we have a longing. Some of the goodness of that comes through the good created things in this life. Beauty, art, literature, friendship, marriage, all of that. There's a, the echoes of that goodness. But as Lewis says, if we, if we mess this up and think actually that that's the source of it, instead of an avenue through which it comes, we'll ask too much of it. If we think our, ma- our marriage can be good, our marriage can be an echo of eternity. But if we think it's the source, we will ask far too much of it. We will, we'll strangle it. Our, you know, vocation is fine. But if we think our meaning and our full purpose comes from vocation, we'll ask too much of it. There are good, there, there's, a, there's a nice pleasant feeling. It often comes with, through a glass of wine. It, it, it echoes the, the foretaste of the, the peace and fullness that is coming. But if we mistake that glass of wine for the source, we'll have another and another and another and another. It'll turn into an idol mocking its worshipers, just like he said. We are built for a relational fullness that we taste now but don't experience yet, but it's coming, and here it is. Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him glory. That's from Psalm 118. For the marriage of the Lamb has come. That's what this multitude in heaven is much more interested in shouting over than the fall of evil. The marriage of the Lamb. It's a theme that's been running all the way through the Bible, that the nature of the relationship between Christ and his church, the corporate body of believers, is akin to that of a loving husband to a wife. That's the picture. Now, I want to point out it's corporate, not individual here. The individuals are never called the bride of Christ. The corporate church is called the bride of Christ together. Individuals, it says, are invited to the wedding feast. I think that's an important distinction. But what we see in Scripture is that the reason God gave marriage to people is to... Uh, so that we can understand better his love. It, it wasn't, okay, sometimes I think we have this idea that God was saying, I wonder what metaphor I can choose to really convince my people of my fidelity and love to them. Oh, I know, marriage. These people get married. They know what that means. Let me pick that up and use that as a metaphor. That's what I'll say. Marriage, it's like marriage. My love for you is like marriage. That's not how marriage came about. God has a love for his people. He says, let me, let me create something that communicates my love for my people. I will give them this, this construct called marriage. And it will, they will never sense it in its complete form, but it, will, it should be always pointing them towards something. But it's a, it's a picture that's pointing us somewhere. So all throughout the Old Testament, the prophets talk about God taking Israel as a wife and the restoration of all things being a great wedding feast that seemingly never ends. Jesus gives parables like the kingdom of heaven is like a wedding feast. He gives that three or four times. The apostle Paul says flat out, marriage is a mystery that refers to Christ in the church. For people who aren't picking it up. This is a mystery that refers to Christ in the church. This is what marriage is. Now I know that not everyone here has a great experience with marriage. Nobody here has the experience with marriage uh, and the fullness of which was designed because we are 
or a sinner married to a sinner if you're married, or you're a sinner waiting to be married, or who was married, right? We just, sin breaks things. And part of the reason it's painful is because it's pointing to something great. And no matter how healthy our marriage might be, it teaches us, boy, there's always room for growth because it's pointing to something great. Not trying to instill like frustration, just like, wow, we have room to move. We have room to move as we move toward Christ. So we want to see right here, the picture is, it's a relational fullness of the corporate bride, the church, being delivered to Jesus at a wedding, at a wedding. It's helpful to know probably that today we think of marriage in a different way than the Bible. It's, since the Enlightenment, we're probably more romantic when we think about marriage, right? I, don't, I like Jane Austen, but not, it's not really, she's not really a scripture writer, right? And the whole, yeah, there's a, I don't want to call Jane Austen out, she's great. But like we think about more romantically. And we, we actually expect a little bit too much of earthly marriage, I think. The whole, like, you complete me type of thing from Jerry Maguire, the old movie. Um, Tom Cruise, we're asking way too much of our marriages. Typically, we're too romantic. Typically, it is a result of the 1960s. Um, in Christian circles, too, we over-sexualize marriage. Like, we're like, we'll save sex for marriage. Okay, that's right. We're just called not committing fornication, right? It's not, but we've so freighted marriage with sex that we've kind of made it about sex sometimes. I don't know. Not helpful, right? So we think a little bit more sexually than the Bible does and a little bit more romantically than the Bible does and definitely more in a contract than a covenant. Um, so consequently, there's a lot of voices in our culture that have a lot of strong opinions to say about marriage and men and women. But can you just remember, we are not doing well as a culture with marriage. We should be very skeptical of all voices talking about marriage in our culture. Even Christian voices who are largely, in my mind, just fed by earthly ideology anyway, right? So we don't need to improve on what the Lord has, has given us here. The picture of marriage in Scripture is love, fidelity, joy, self-giving, there is intimacy, protection. It's where two people take, one person takes the other as his or her own. And that is the picture of the intention of God for his people. I love you. My intention for you is overwhelming love and taking you as my own. It's relational fullness. That's where you're headed. Nothing else will satisfy you because you're created for that. Nothing else can satisfy. Everything else, there can, satisfaction can come through other things. But all those things should be always pointing us on to the fullness that's coming. Never has a groom sacrificed more. Gave his life. Waited longer. Gone to greater lengths. Loved more. Given more. Never a greater pledge given than the the betrothal pledge of Christ to his people, which is the Holy Spirit. Marriage, I'm sorry, marriage, joy, fullness of joy is relational. We're at at base, relational beings, and God's called us into full relationship, knowing that the fullness is not yet here, but we taste of it. Full joy is participatory as well. These are interesting words here. Verse 7 again, let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and the bride has made herself ready. So the bride did something, made herself ready, 
Verse 8, then, it was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. So you have this wonderful connection here. The, the bride has done something, but it was a gift. How does the bride do something that's a gift to the bride? Well, this is how the Holy Spirit works. She's done something, and the, the righteous deeds of the saints in the book of Revelation is faithfulness to Jesus, to the witness of Jesus in the face of oppression, opposition, and persecution. That's the faithfulness. You say, yes, the bride did that, and it was a gift. That's how grace works together. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it's God who is at work in you to will and work for his good pleasure. Together, it's a mystery. We work because God is working in us. Isaiah 61.10 says we are clothed in the robe of righteousness. That's Jesus Christ. You are clothed in Christ's righteous robes. And God said, how about that? Now, on those robes, do these good things by holding fast to the testimony of Christ. Right? It's a gift that leads to work. The fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Just a couple of thoughts here. First, all the unknown faithfulness in our world is not unknown at all. All our brothers and sisters suffering in silence right now, it's unknown to us. It's not unknown to the Lord. This is part of the spectacular garments of the bride who's made herself ready. People who are, the Babylon would say are not impressive. I mean, Babylon loves glitz and honor and power and glamour and tweetability and, and beauty and fashion. And uh, the Lord does not seem to care about that whatsoever. He says, I see that faithfulness. I see you faithfully loving your kids when nobody will. I see you faithfully caring for your elderly neighbor when nobody knows about. I see you faithfully doing things that nobody sees but me, but nobody needs to see him. I see him. I see him. I notice. This is why further we spur one another on to love and good deeds because it's building this beautiful picture of the bride of Christ. Full joy is relational. It's participatory. And right now the bride in history is preparing herself by holding on. And the bride, you know, in weddings always prepares herself more. Like a wedding's at 3 o'clock. I get to do a lot of weddings. It's one of the privileges of the job. Wedding starts at 3. Bridal party shows up at 8 a.m. Guys show up, 1.30. Please be there. And they don't really need to be there until 2.30, but we just lie and say be there an hour early, right? And don't let any Cheeto cheese get on your suit. Uh, like I said, it's like, then the grooms are always handsome, but I've never seen a bride that didn't look good. Right? Why? She's made herself ready. And so the suffering of God's people in this age is not unto nothing. This is being used by even the suffering in Babylon to prepare the church for that great and glorious day because full joy is participatory. And finally, it is central. Verse 9, And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So that last line is kind of confusing. I think it, what's happening here is the angel's basically saying, look, John, I know you're overwhelmed by this imagery, but I'm just a messenger like you are. It's the testimony about Jesus that I bear, that you bear, is the essence of prophecy. I'm just a messenger. Don't worship me. But before that, he said, the angel says, I want you to write this. Blessed 
are those who were invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Blessed, that sense, from all since the garden on of shalom, of wholeness. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Blessed are you. You. You are in this verse. Blessed are those who are invited. It's you. It's the word kaleo. It means called in the Greek. Blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. It's what it's all about. It's what it's always been about. People often ask, why, why did God create at all? Why would God need to create? Answer, he didn't. God does not need to create. We don't complete him. God is perfectly happy in a trinity, full of joy, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God created because he's generous and offers that joy to others to share in. Come and get it. Come and enjoy this relational joy. He creates us. He creates you so that we may enjoy him. That was the reason for the garden. God designed the pinnacle of his creation to share fellowship with him. And if you remember, he used to walk with them in the garden. But after sin enters the world, Adam and Eve do two things. They hide and they make clothes for themselves. And God comes upon this couple in the garden hiding from him resisting this relational connection with clothes they've made themselves. So just a couple sinners huddled behind these loincloths. And then down through the ages, he pursues a people who tend to avoid him, like the people who were sitting in your seat, like the people who are standing behind this podium right here. He pursues us down through the ages, seeking a people, not an employee, not a partner, not a slave, but a bride. He seeks us with an aggressive love that pursues us down through the ages and through every day of your life to this day. And here in this final vision is the bride, still sinners in their past, but now clothed with new garments, the righteous robes of Christ, in which they get to participate now by holding faithfully to his word. And it's always been about joy. Now, Jesus gives us a little hint, hint about this. The first miracle he ever does in his public ministry is at a, anybody know? At a wedding. Wedding in Cana of Galilee. They run out of wine. So Jesus makes just a little bit more wine. 180 gallons more wine. <laughs> Jesus knows how to party. But before he does that, Mary asks him to do it, and he says to her, Mary, or he says woman, but that's harder in English, like, ma'am, it is not yet my time. And we've asked, what does that mean, that it's not yet his time? I think it means two things. One, it's not yet his time at that point in his ministry to provide the true wine, the wine of his blood. But it's also not yet his time for a marriage feast. Not yet his time for a wedding feast. That time will come. When will that time come? Well, the words we use for institution often are from Matthew 26. This is in your insert. Just hear these words. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And sometimes we stop there, but if we don't stop, here are the next words. I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So what started out as a Passover meal with Jesus giving his life, 
ends up in a wedding feast with Jesus inviting all who dine at his table to come in and enjoy. Down through the ages, he communicates his covenant love to his people over and over and over again. Part of the way we take that to ourselves is weekly coming to the communion table, tasting of this. It looks backwards to what Jesus has done in his life, death, and resurrection. It looks around to see the people we're taking communion with, and it looks to Christ standing in heaven now, empowering us by his grace through these elements, and it looks forward to that day when we will again join him in this feast. And if you're in Christ, I want to invite you to come to this table and be convinced all over again of the covenant faithful love of God for you.